Cleo, Arado, Polyhymnia. Among the nine muses of Greek mythology, there's no muse for the essay. And that's not only because the essay doesn't appear in name until Montaigne publishes his first book of them in 1850. No, one gets the feeling that, even if Homer had composed essays about the wine-dark sea or rosy-fingered dawn, this literary genre, so often associated with five-paragraph structures and freshman composition courses, still wouldn't have a goddess representing it on Mount Parnassus. The essay, unlike the epic or the love poem, is just too pedestrian, too workaday and uninspired to find a place among the timeless arts. That doesn't stop Ned Stuckey French from championing the essay. In fact, for Stuckey French, the middling nature of the essay is one of its very virtues. In his study, The American Essay in the American Century, he gives us a vision of the essay as a genre that's as plucky and adaptable as the American spirit itself, showing us how writers and readers reinvented it at the beginning of the 20th century for a new nation, one teeming with Ford motor cars and weekly magazines and a growing middle class, eager for writing that spoke to its fears and desires. Stuckey French shows us how and why the essay that creation of a Renaissance French aristocrat becomes an American essay, a democratic genre, able to take the pulse of our bustling nation. And if this social history of the essay weren't enough, Stucky French has also published with his co-editor Carl Krauss an anthology of essayists on the essay, a collection of writing that begins with Montaigne and takes us right up to the present where the essay is once again adapting to a new world, one of web browsers and blogs, smartphones and video. And yet the essay lives on, undaunted, ready to take up the challenges of our new century. Lucky French, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much, Eric. Thanks for asking me. It's great to have you here. And you've got not one, but two really fascinating books that are centering around the essay. There's the essay... Uh, essayists on the essay and the American essay in the American century. And I'm looking forward to to diving into both of them. But first I'm kind of curious, what brings you to the essay? You know, it's, it's, uh, as you yourself write a kind of underwritten about, uh, under theorized genre. And suddenly we have not one, but two books from you. Well, uh, you know, it's a long story with many baby steps, I suppose. But, uh, I, uh, I was out of academics for a long time, or out of the academy for a long time. I, I uh, uh, worked as a uh, um, union organizer for 10 years, a high school teacher for four years, and so forth. But I kept reading all that time, and, and, and I, I always read fiction. I'd read a lot. You know, I was always reading, always had a novel going. But I also found that I was really drawn to a lot of the contemporary American essayists who I guess one could argue or say or some have said uh, are creating a kind of a renaissance for the form in America. People like uh, Joan Didion, Edward Hoagland, Barry Lopez, Scott Russell Sanders, Annie Dillard. I was reading them anyway. I was interested in nature writing especially. So when I met my wife, Elizabeth, who's a novelist, and uh, we decided – to go back to graduate school, this was about 1990, uh, we were looking for programs where we might both be happy, and uh, uh, Iowa was, was that place. Uh, it had, I went there for a PhD in literature, and she went uh, to be uh, in the writer's workshop. And uh, I, at that point, a lot of my, again, a lot of my interest was with, was in nature writing. And so, you know, I, I took a class on Thoreau, this and that, but but increasingly I I realized I was really it was it was bigger than that. It was not just nature writing, but it was it was the personal essay was was what was uh, intriguing me the most. And I I, I uh, had fallen into the perhaps the best place to to find that that was an interest of mine because. Uh, Carl Klaus was there. I had gone to graduate school originally back in the 70s at, at Brown and had worked with Bob Scholes, with Robert Scholes. And now I found myself working with Carl Klaus, who is Bob Scholes' best friend. They had collaborated on books back in the 70s and 80s. And, um, and Carl was organizing a 
reading group um, of, of graduate students, I think there were six of us, to begin to try to look at what uh, essayists themselves were saying about the essay. Uh, because, as you suggested, the, the genre is a, seen as kind of a service genre. It's a, it's a genre used to write about other more literary, more fancy genres like fiction or poetry. It's seen as a service genre in the sense that it's a genre used to teach 19-year-olds how to write in first-year writing classes. Um, but Carl saw it as something more than that, and so did I, and so did we. And so we began with Montaigne, and just we'd take a decade and go to the library and search for what essayists had said about their form and... Uh, began to put that material together and began to have monthly discussions about about the form and about these what these writers were saying and uh, that's really the material that essays on the essay came out of and that really spurred my interest in the form because they were just they were great conversations and we realized there was a lot more there, there that there were uh, formal decisions that, that were being made that were fully as sophisticated and layered and difficult as, as those that poets or fiction writers or playwrights uh, make. So we, we saw that it was more than just the fourth genre. Well, it's quite obvious that the two books are infused as labors of love, so I like the fact that there was, was friendship and even a love story behind the generation of them. Um, and I also uh, picked up on the point that you talked about the essay as a, a service genre, and I think there's a lot of attention, um, especially in the American essay and the American century, kind of on the, the class structures that surround the essay. Um, and it's curious enough, uh, for me at least, that you begin, however, um, not with a kind of class structure that we would associate with, with service or, or middle brow culture, but you begin with the genteel class. Your story opens with the genteel essay and gentlemen sitting by firesides. Well, that, that, that's true. And part of the reason for that, I guess, was I, I had this, I had this historical scope or this sweep that the, that the essayist and the essay group had given me. So I, I had, you know, been reading essayists starting with Montaigne, but among American essayists, I'd also started with Washington Irving and, uh, you know, Fanny Fern and 19th century essayists. And, and you can't do that and not encounter Emerson, of course. I mean, he's the 800-pound gorilla, right? And I, I, I uh, and one of the questions that intrigued me was, why was there not really an Emersonian tradition? Why, why, you know, I think it was Joel Porte in an article back in the 1970s, I believe, tried to answer what what he called the Emerson problem, which is why has this author that we all consider to be one of the greatest American authors, why is he not studied? Why is he not read? Why is he, why is he seen as difficult? Why is he seen as crotchety? Or ultimately, why is he sometimes reduced to this, this, this guy who, offer, who wrote some bad poetry and offers these kind of aphorisms about self-reliance and American exceptionalism or something? And, uh, you know, if you've read him as an essayist, you know that there's, <laughs> that there's more than that. And yet, why no essayists after that? Why, why instead were the essayists that dominated in the 50, 60, 70 years after Emerson's death, those essayists that I, I forget who it was, but someone said, men who parted their names in the middle, <laughs> Oliver Wendell Holmes and James Russell Lowell and so on. And, and I, I also knowing from the, the uh, reading that we've been doing, that there was going to be an explosion of a new kind of essay, a new group of essayists with the arrival of the columnists in the New York newspapers in the 1920s and the Algonquin Roundtable and and all of those people that would lead eventually to, to E.B. White, to James Baldwin, to a new New Yorker, that I um, I kind of knew where the story was going. 
<laughs> when I began to, to to write those pages about the 19th century, and I and I knew that part of it was, as you suggested, that the the middle class changed, their audience changed, and that allowed the essay to change, because the middle class had been in the 19th century these kind of um, independent entrepreneurs. You know, they were the, they were the lawyer or the the uh, uh, doctor who hung out a shingle in a small town. They were the, 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 the preacher in the small town. They were their spouses. They were uh, uh, the school superintendent, the school teacher. And, um, and that middle class was changing at the end of the 19th century with the, with the uh, incorporation of America as, as uh, uh, it's it's been called and and so those lawyers now became came to be on retainer to corporations. They were working for the railroads or they were working for U.S. Steel. Uh, the rise of public education meant that the teachers now were part of a bigger system. They weren't just sort of uh, running their own little independent uh, one-room schoolhouse. They weren't, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder going out to teach on the prairie. They were, they were part of a system and had to answer to a school board, a school superintendent, and they were then aspiring to teach in colleges, which there was a rise of public higher education, but so on and so forth. And I, and I saw that it was, you know, that America was changing, the, and that was a lot of why the essay changed. And so I, I, I wanted to see why the genteel uh, middle class and the genteel essay had held on for so long. Because I don't think you can call Emerson or Thoreau genteel. I don't think you can call Fanny Fern genteel. <laughs> but, but, but you certainly can call James Russell Lowell or Oliver Wendell Holmes or their lessers who also had three names genteel and, and, and it was how, how did they hold on so long? And then how were they finally undone? Uh, because it, the essay lagged behind, I think other genres, poetry and fiction in particular in, in arriving at modernism, if, if it ever really has. Uh, and, um, and, and that, that was a question that I found intriguing. It, it's a fascinating engine that fuels the opening of the book. And I think, uh, for me, one of the, the more enlightening moments, um, and it's kind of one of those things that is, as soon as I read it in the book, I thought, of course, aha, is is the way in which you show that the essay as a genre is kind of this this spunky phoenix that rises from its own death at the, the beginning of the, the 20th century um, mm-hmm. and in the progressive era finds a new way of connecting with an audience and a new way of, of mattering in these large social changes that you've just been detailing. Um, and that's, of course, what we start to call the column mm-hmm. rather than the essay. And so just that shift in terminology opens up a whole new set of possibilities or it registers them. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. I mean, it, the essay just keeps dying, dying and dying and dying. <laughs> it, it's, going so it, it's still going on. You know, uh, uh, my friend Philip Lopate had a terrific piece in the New York Times book review and oh, it must have been mid-1970s, late 1970s, something like that. And it was titled, The Essay Lives in Disguise because it keeps coming it keeps coming back as something else right as the new yorker profile or the you know the the nature essay or the 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 new york times or the new york review of books review essay or something like that and yes in the 1920s i think it came back with a vengeance as the column because here suddenly you had all of these new writers uh and it wasn't, it, you know, as I talk about in the book, it was it, there was a kind of an opening act even in Chicago, maybe twenty or thirty years earlier, uh, in what was called the uh, the Robin's Egg uh, uh, Revolution by uh, uh, Sherwood Anderson, and that it was a it was a revolution that where the egg fell out of <laughs> out of out of the uh, nest a little too soon, so it never really took off, but it, it did make possible, and some of those essays even moved to, to New York, but where it really happened was in New York right after World War One. I. I think there were a lot of things that came together to make it happen, I mean, just to tick off a few and, you know, go into them more in the book, but what the... the um, the war, certainly, for one. I mean, the the disillusionment, the kind of the 
the the the recognition that America was now uh, a player on the world stage in a way that it hadn't been before that we'd been called upon on certain sense, or at least we thought we had been called upon to, to rescue Europe from itself or something. Uh, but that, that, that this war to end all wars was not going to end all wars and that it was a, a horror. So that was one thing I think, you know, that lost generation feel that was in the air in the twenties. And, but then the other thing was the roaring twenties and New York was, you know, as uh, Ann Douglas has, has said in Mongol Manhattan, it was it was the capital of the modern world. It was it was where movies were being made, where Broadway was happening, where Gershwin was writing music, where where newspapers were were there were what I think there were tw- at one point there were twelve daily papers in the city. There were. Uh, um, uh, you know, immigrants of all nationalities coming there. The Harlem Renaissance was happening. It was just, you know, this 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 cauldron of of cultural activity, and the colonists were basically kind of um, they were writing these columns. They had different deadlines, but most of them were writing five or six days a week. Some of them were also doing some some. Um, Play reviews, some book reviews. They were they were up against tremendous deadlines, but they were they were in a way they were they were selling New York. They were they were explaining New York to the rest of the country and to the world, but especially the rest of the country because they were syndicated. So they were they were being read in papers in Tucson and in Denver and in you know California and in Chicago and little towns in Michigan and Atlanta, and so. They, everybody wanted to sort of, you know, what what Harold Ross famously referred to as that little old lady in Dubuque. You know, he he, he kind of scorned her and said, oh, "My magazine will not be for her." But he knew full well that that was that there were a lot of little old ladies in Dubuque out there who who wanted to read about New York and wanted to to be privy to it a certain way. And that's what the columnists were doing. They were they were then they were using. They were using Yiddish. They were using modernism. They were using uh, the uh, the language of the street. They were they were making allusions to movies and to modern music. And you know, it, it, it was it was clearly a, a a place that needed a new genre. And and that genre was a new reinvigorated essay that that uh, they uh, they created almost without knowing it. I think. And it's, I love the little old lady in Dubuque because this is the moment that, that you register the, the essay turns from the genteel reader um, who was part and parcel with you know, the, the genteel essay and the gentleman writer to the reading public as imagined mm-hmm. and at large. This seems like the, the perfect moment to, to maybe turn to your title. And uh, if you'd be willing to give us a gloss on that, because I think you know, what emerges in this part of the book is that with the columnists in New York City at this moment, um, that seems for you to be the beginning of what you're calling the American essay. Right. Well, the the story of my title is that it was originally, that was originally the subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> and the title that that was the subtitle to was Middle Class Slash Middle Brow. So I, I was... I was playing with or trying to look at that, those those questions, and and my next book is going to be more thoroughly about middle brow. But but that was some of what was being wrestled with at this time as well, because I think 1925 was also it was the big bang for middle brow culture, and so a lot of these people were a part of that as well. The, you know, Haywood Brown and Christopher Morley were two of the original judges for the Book of the Month Club. You know that kind of thing, but. But I think my – I guess it was my the, – the, the editor, Claire Wilcox at the University of Missouri Press, who said that he thought that, that, that we needed to get to the that – that while the book was about the middle class and the middle brow, that the book was first and foremost about the essay. And that that middle brow and middle class provided the context for that, but that we should focus on that. And I think he was right. And I think it makes the book sound it, – it focuses what the book is about and it makes the book sound more substantial, I think, in a certain way. It diffuses what it's about. 
uh, uh, to have that middle class, middle ground. So anyway, so he, he, he did that. And I, that subtitle, too, I have to – I want to footnote here. My, my good friend Tom Lutz, who's the editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books and was a professor of mine at, at Iowa, he, he told me way back early on in an early draft of this book that, that, he, that he, he thought that's what I was writing about. So, so we, we'd settled on that – I'd settled on that title a certain way. Or it was there as the, as the subtitle, but then I still need to figure out well, what what is the American essay and what is the American century, <laughs> which were, were also vexed problems, I think. You know, so for me, the American essay, kind of like kind of like the genteel tradition, the genteel tradition, I think, was over pretty much at the moment that Santa Ana, George Santa Ana, named it in 1911. It's kind of when you're living in it, and when it's the hegemony. The hegemonic cultural form in which you're existing it's, it's the air that you're breathing it's the water you're swimming in you don't know that you're breathing air you don't know that you're a fish swimming in water you don't you can't see it and name it and everything it's only afterwards when you I don't know to belabor this metaphor you're the you're the lungfish that's crawled out on land and you're like, oh the ocean you know <laughs> and, and so there were it, it, I think he, he could identify the genteel culture. The genteel tradition, nineteen eleven, kind of pretty much it went because it was over, or was in decline then, and so he could see it in relief. He wasn't living in it, and I think the same thing was true. My my view, anyway, is that the same thing was essentially true of the American century. That once once Henry Luce named it in that kind of famous Life magazine editorial that he wrote in nineteen forty one, it was. 41, 42, 41, I think, that it was, it was, it, it, America was, was not the same kind of dominant uh, nation that, it, 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 that he, he thought it was going to be. It was already, things were starting to turn. And I think because, as Michael Denning has said, because after, after World War II, which he was writing, you know, Lucy's writing on the cusp of World War II, but after World War II, then, then it's the Cold War. It's not really the American century. It's now the Cold War, or what he calls the age of three worlds, because we, we also have the, you know, the, the, the dismantling of colonialism, especially in, in Asia, in the subcontinent, and in Africa, and uh, in the Caribbean. And so you, you have the rise of whatever you want to call it, the third world, the developing world, whatever. So there are now three kind of poles and everything uh, in, in, in that period of from 1950, certainly, I guess, to, till the present, or at, at least through to the, the, the fall of the, uh, of the wall in 1989, 1990. And so... So I want to think, okay, well, what, what made that – when then does the American century start? And I think it started earlier than the 20th century. I think it started more like in the 1870s or 1880s, kind of with the end of Reconstruction, perhaps, and the rise of industrialization in America. And um, so then I try to think, well, what's, what's the American essay in that period? And that's sort of what we already talked about, I think, what that, what that essay was. But that was the century it was speaking to to me. So that, that century is not really a whole century. It's a short century. And it's a century that was not the 20th century as loose wanted to identify it, but something shorter. And other people have talked about this as, as well. Other scholars have said it. The American century ended with the 60s, with Vietnam, with Watergate, you know, wherever. I, I think it ended earlier. I think it gives you a, a very solid period in which to, to kind of move outward. And um, I think people are going to be amazed at what goes into the social history of a genre. I mean, you don't only talk about essayists. You don't only talk about contexts like the New Yorker or the Ladies' Home Journal. There are passages in which you're analyzing the change of domestic architecture in order to talk about the nature of the essay. It's, it's, it's a tour de force. Well, thank you. There were, there were more such passages. <laughs> just, I went on a little too long about that. I got fascinated with it. Yeah, yeah. where people read, I think, is one, something that's important to me because uh, that... Uh, as you alluded to earlier, that 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 gentleman at the fireplace, that kind of retired professor who has a student coming by for 
Sherry and they, they talk about uh, old books or old art at the fireplace or that gentleman who's looking out from the, you know, the, the, the drawing room onto his gardens and, you know, thinking about uh, the past. Th- that was kind of the, 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 the person, the persona that, that uh, typified a certain age, the genteel age, the genteel tradition, and also that that kind of essay, I think. Whereas the columnist is somebody entirely different, and he's writing for he's writing for these people who are living in these new kind of houses and are reading for new reasons and are reading a new configuration. So he's he's writing for the commuter who's hanging onto a strap on the trolley car going in from the those first suburbs, those first trolley car suburbs like. Uh, you know, Braintree into Boston or Quincy into Boston or, or, uh, you know, Westchester into New York. And, um, and that, that, that the architecture also, I think, yeah, it was, they were, they, these people, these, this new middle class, they were living in a new kind of house. They were living in, in bungalows in large, to large parts. So they were, and they were living in, uh, Houses that now had central heating, that had electric lights and everything. So it was no longer father reading out loud to the family grouped around one fireplace in the parlor after having mother play the piano and they all sang hymns or, you know, kind of pop songs together. And then father read from something that he could feel comfortable reading aloud in the presence of his teenage daughter. You know, that kind of decorum. Was, was no longer happening. You had the magazine revolution of the 1890s, and so now you've got, you've got Junior upstairs reading his St. Nicholas magazine or his you know, uh, sporting news or something, uh, and you've got, you got his sister in her room reading uh, maybe Nancy Drew mysteries or you know, uh, uh, that kind of thing. You have Mom reading Ladies' Home Journal in the kitchen maybe, and, and Dad reading... Uh, you know who knows what a, a golf magazine or a, a home repair magazine or, or something like that in in the living room maybe or the or the newspaper and uh, but all of them in all of those magazines reading writers who are writing columns who are writing something that's akin to the essay and um, so yeah so domestic architecture it changed changed the, the who was reading what and where. I think, yeah, and what the reading time was like, and they, they were not by 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 looking at the house where they were reading, by looking at that uh, new bungalow with its different rooms. Um, I was able to individualize that reading public again after having kind of talked about them as being part of this corporate audience that was being targeted by the different magazines and by the different uh, you know, mass publishers that, that, that uh, came onto the scene in the 1890s, 1910s, that now I could look at, okay, well, who are they individually? And, and the house was a way to do that. And I, I think that gives you a, a way to be to begin to account for the different kinds of essays that emerge and the different voices that emerge within them. Um, I think we we have to, of course, turn in a book about the American essay in the American century to who, for you, becomes the central American essayist, or at least the figure that emerges at the end is one of the heroes of this book, mm-hmm. uh, which is E.B. White. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and 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 he was. I, well, yes. I, first of all, I think he's he's a great essayist, a neglected essayist. He's somebody who's who's you know absolutely astounding career as a first as a as a humorist and a children's book writer. You know, I mean, Charlotte's Web is the most popular children's book ever written. I mean, I, I forget I forget what it is now. It's something I think it's sold something like twenty five million copies. Um. My own daughter played Fern Arable in a in a, uh, a stage production over here. So, you know, it's something that like high school drama departments they're, they're they're putting on. It's been made into movies and everything. And then you know that doesn't even mention Stuart Little and Trump of the Swan. So he's got he's just everybody thinks of him as a children's book writer or alternately as White of Strunk and White. You know, and they've received that. Elements of style as a high school graduation present or something, and so they don't. You know, people don't know about him in the way that the 
New Yorker readers of the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s knew him. And, uh, and I, 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 I find that criminal because <laughs> I, I, I think he's a, a great writer. But um, he also served me well because he had grown up yeah, he's born in eighteen ninety nine. So he really grew up. He, he was he began reading and writing because he he had pub, published in Saint Nicholas Magazine, for instance, this children's magazine that was uh, uh, written by and for children uh, back in the early part of the twentieth century. His family was his father had been uh, his, his his father's father had been an alcoholic, and so his father had had to go to work when he was thirteen years old and work his way up until he became a, he was a successful he was finally the president of a piano manufacturing company. They lived in the, the first suburb in America, Mount Vernon in New York, uh, and so it, it was just this like his story was the story I was telling in a certain way, except. You know, on a biographical scale. And then he wrote for the New Yorker, which is the quintessential middle-brow magazine. Then, though, he had to break from that. He, he'd grown up, he'd grown up reading and, and studying and loving those columnists that I was talking about in the 20s and then kind of essentially became one of them at the New Yorker. But then realized there's got to be something new that that he was he was he was um, tired of and having to 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 write with that New Yorker weed, you know, and the little bitty paragraphs at the at the beginning and the talk of the town and then the notes and comments section where there was was no byline no contributors notes in the new yorker back then so no, nobody knew i mean everybody did in new york but you know the little old lady in dubuque maybe didn't know that this was eb white writing this stuff and he had to use that we which he said should it was a a, a corporate voice it was like hiding behind a mask at the uh, at, the, at a masked ball and, and, and coming out and kissing all the girls from behind the mask and then going back behind it. He said it was just, just, just disreputable. He said it was a, a form that should be reserved only for the Dion quintuplets. They should have the only ones be able to allow that, be allowed to use that weed. <laughs> and he, he, so he was tired of that and he was tired of writing just little short humor pieces because he was starting to realize in the last half of the 1930s that he was, well, he, he already knew he was tremendously privileged, I think, to be doing so well because the New Yorker was doing so well. But he was, he was just in battle with the isolationists, especially Charles and Anne Moreau Lindbergh, but Father Coughlin and all, all the others that, who were saying we need to, you know, just look the other way, that all that stuff that's happening over there in Europe with the rise of fascism, it's on the other side of the pond. We've got this whole ocean between us. You know, let's, let's not get involved. And um, he felt otherwise. He felt otherwise. But he could, not, he could not write about that at the New Yorker. So he leaves the New Yorker, he goes to, moves to Maine, and he, he begins writing a, uh, uh, not, a, not these weekly small pieces that are in the first-person plural for the New Yorker, but begins to write a signed, regular, monthly column called One Man's Meat for Harper's Magazine and, uh, and begins to, to, to really take on the isolationists, begins to really try to figure out what is America about now, why, what are we fighting for, what are the what do the four freedoms really mean? What, what is, what is uh, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear? What do they mean? Um, and, and, and it was, as he referred to it later, it was an enchanted time. And he ended up collecting those essays in a book called One Man's Mate. And, um, and I think it's a neglected masterpiece. And, I, and, and so he, he served served me well. Now, if, if I defined the American century as I could easily have done as going on into the 1950s or the 1960s, then, you know, the book might have ended with James Baldwin or ended with Joan Didion, you know, who I think are perhaps the two great essayists of the next quarter century after White writes uh, uh, One Man's Mate. 
but um, but I didn't. There may be another book, but uh, but yeah, that. So Edie White, he, yeah, he's he's the, he's the hero of the book. He's the hero. <laughs> I want you to write that book, actually. <laughs> um, well, reviewers, that's what they asked for because I think they, you know, everybody still thinks of the American century as the twentieth century, so they they wanted me to go all the way to the end. Well, but, you know, I'm sure you could just knock that thing out in the summer or something yeah, like sure. that. <laughs> well, it turns out you do end the book with E.B. White, um, but you end in uh, contemporary composition classrooms as much as you end I, with his most famous essay. I do because I I I, I felt I, that that the essay as that service genre that we talked about that that was where that was tip of that that's where that's just. Uh, happening the, in in the worst possible ways in some ways, and I was working there, following on a on a, a, a tremendous essay that Lynn Bloom wrote called the Essay Canon, and uh, where she did this great research where she looked at, I mean, virtually all of the first year writing composition anthologies of the last half of the twentieth century. She had research assistants for two or three years, just they're ordering all these, buying them from used bookstores, looking at them and going through all of them. And, and not just one edition of the Norton Reader, but all eight editions of the Norton Reader or whatever, you know, and just cataloging, okay, what, what essays were being taught? How were they being taught? What were the discussion questions like? What were the writing prompts that were being used like? And so on and so forth. And she came to this conclusion, which is that, that, the, that the essay canon, the essays that we know and we teach now, are primarily the essay, essays that are, are, we came to or that are being taught in uh, first-year writing classes. And that part of the problem is, well, there are a couple of problems. One is that, that that's militated toward shorter essays or, in many cases, even excerpts of essays because you're trying to find pieces that can be, taught, can be used by beginning teachers, teaching assistants, graduate students, who are teaching for the first time and who uh, need to try to teach whatever this or that rhetorical mode, narrative or description or persuasion or whatever, in a 45-minute class to 19-year-old first-year writing students. So that's part of the problem. And the other problem is that these anthologies are dehistoricizing the essay because it's because of what they're being asked to do. They're being asked to, to, to be used to, to, to teach a, to model a particular writing uh, mode. And, um, and I feel that, uh, that if the essay is to really be seen as a literary genre, if we're going to, de- to rethink the essay canon as uh, and, and, and see it as not just a pedagogical canon. It can still be a pedagogical canon, but also a literary canon, a national canon, a critical canon. That we're going to need, we need to look at the context. We need to look at the tradition. And certainly, there are anthologies that are beginning to do that. I think the two, well, the three probably most significant ones would be Philip Lopate's The Art of the Personal Essay, certainly, which goes back to to the classical world, but comes up to the present when he did it, which was, I think, came out in 1997 or something. And then um, the Robert Atwan, Bob Atwan, and Joyce Carol Oates anthology, The Best American Essays of the Century, being the century being the 20th century. And then the fine work that John Degada has done both with the next American essay, which sort of starts in the 1970s and comes up to whatever, he, that, that book came out 2005, I think, and also The Lost Origins of the Essay, his other anthology that, that, that tries to do something like what Lopate is doing. And so those, those anthologies are historical, but there's, there's still anthologies and there's only so much they can do with the head notes and so forth, which I, I believe me, I understand having edited essays on the essay with Carl, and so I, I um, with Carl Klaus, and so uh, um, I, I, um, um, excuse me, I, um, I think that we need to look at context as well. We need to look at who were these essays written for, who is reading them, what can that tell us about the essay? So 
and actually like what's more to the lake is not um, seen now as just something that can be knocked out in an hour of class and be used as a uh, to prompt a kind of what I did on my summer vacation essay. Even though it is about this man and his son, E.B. White and his son, Joel, going back to a lake in Maine that E.B. White had gone to when he was a boy, it is that, but it's also about the storm clouds coming in off the North Atlantic and about retreat and about the war to end all wars and about the decline of the middle class or the change in the middle class and 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 so many other things. And, and then we can begin to look at some of the 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 things that White was doing formally there, I think, in new ways and in richer ways, and we can see the essay through new eyes. And I think that's true for many others. Uh, I've got a, a a website, and on my website, there, my graduate students and I are trying to post. Uh, uh, we're we're putting together um, uh, pages on that website for each of several what we think anyway are significant or important essays where we try to to look at the essays that first appeared in Partisan Review in 1943 or in Collier's back in 1919 or whatever and who was reading it then, what did the ads look like, what else was in the table of contents, what was the situation, and then what were the subsequent appearances and how did it uh, uh, get rethought and how did it reappear and what, how was it changed? How was it edited differently, and so forth? And and it's a, a kind of a teaching tool, but it's also we hope it'll prompt discussion about uh, what the essay can is and how it might be re- reimagined. I I think what you get from from the end of your book with once more to the lake, which you know formally is a beautiful essay, uh, once you plug it back into its history, you also get a new kind of readerly pleasure um, to just see suddenly the context that was charging that essay that's right off stage, as it were, for White. I, I hope so. That's certainly my goal. I'm glad that you see it that way. I I, I think it does. I think I think I think. You know, when I was in college, I was I, I was trained in in uh, kind of in you know the 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 uh, new criticism and that formalist reading that you just you look at the text. But then, then Vietnam happened, and the civil rights movement, and the women's movement happened, and we began to occupy buildings, and <laughs> and we began to call for women's studies departments and African American studies departments, and I began to go to the radical caucus, the MLA, and we tried to open up the canon, and and I, you know, started reading Marx and became an organizer, and I saw that you know context was important, but but some of my former teachers, <laughs> who were new critics, some of the best new critics, some of the great new critics, they resisted what we were doing there and they saw it just as sociology and reductive and so forth. And I, I never believed that. I always felt that 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 I could take this tool that they had given me, this this close reading, and I could use it, but that as a reader I could return to the text and look at it uh, when my context changed and when what I learned about its context changed and that I could find a new reading, you know, that kind of what, what we began to get with the post-structuralists with, with Roland Barthes and Foucault and everything that there, there's, you know, that, that there are writerly and readerly texts as, as, as Bart talks about in SC and that, that there, that they, that there are readings of text. There's not one reading of a text. There's not one text, but there are readings of a text. And, uh, and so I, that's what I'm trying to do in that last, in that, uh, that, that last chapter where I'm talking about once more the, to the lake, I'm trying to offer a new reading of that, uh, of that great essay. I, I think you succeed there. And I think just as you can offer new readings of text, you can offer new readings of the essays. And one of the nice things about your book with Carl Klaus and the collection you've put together there is you begin with ideas about the essay that start with Montaigne in 1580. And you go all the way up to the present, right? The video and radio essay that John Breslin and Jeff Porter write about. Right. So I I want to make sure we at least get to this question about the essay, since I know that you've continued to write beyond uh, the American century about the essay. In terms of the essay, what's the water we're swimming in now? 
it's digital water, I guess. <laughs> hey, I, I think there's a digital revolution. I don't think we can ignore it. I think, I think that that's. I don't know how that's going to change the essay. I see some ways that I think it's already changing the essay. Uh, but, but you know, there was a great piece uh, by oh, uh, what's her name that wrote that great book about Montaigne uh, about two three years ago. But anyway, oh, how the, to live? Yeah, how to live. Uh, I'm blanking on her name, but anyway, she wrote a great piece. I think it was the New Republic or somewhere that, that about if Montaigne were alive now, he'd be a blogger. <laughs> you know, he just keep because that was what he did. You know, he in three different editions of the essays, and he never took anything out. He only added. You know, and that's that's sort of what a blog is. It just goes on and on, doesn't it? You know, and and it, you write about things that are in the news. You write about yourself. You write about uh, you know issues that you know the, these these blog pieces are occasioned by what's going on in the world. And the essay like as columns as the periodical essays of those London coffee houses at the end of the uh, uh, 18th century. They, they were, you know, writing pieces that were responding to whatever it was being gossiped about in the, in the uh, you know, on Grub Street or in the coffee house last week. And I, I think that's what's happening now. And not only that, though, but that, that you know, it's we're, we're writing differently now. I mean, sure, we're, there's, people are afraid of, like, what's happening to writing because everybody's going to write in 140-character bytes or it's all Facebook posts or that kind of thing. But it, but there are other possibilities. I mean, what we're doing right now with a, with a podcast, uh, with a, you know, what John Breslin is doing with video essays and, and Marilyn Freeman and others, uh, Dante Moore's fabulous piece where he uses Google Maps to write an essay about his relationship with George Plimpton. Uh, Embedded video, the, the the book trailers that are now being uh, created to publicize books, or uh, Ron Charles's uh, video book reviews for the Washington Post, or you know, on and on. I mean, this is, I, I think I think this is some of what's happening right now to the essay, and I don't know where it's going, but it's it's exciting. Well, I would be curious to know where you're going with your next project, given that you know you've got at least one request in to finish off the 20th century, um, <laughs> and it sounds like you've got a lot of good thoughts on what's happening right at the moment. Where are yeah. you turning next? Well, I, I, as I said, I'm putting some work into this uh, this uh, uh, online digital archive of essays, and and, so, and I've been writing some pieces that do update things. I, I've delivered some papers and. At conferences and uh, publishing some pieces about James Baldwin and about Joan Didion and trying to, to, to contextualize them in the same way that I did White's uh, 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 Once More to Lake. I, I did that with, with Baldwin's uh, Notes of Native Son and with, with Didion's The White Album. So I'm, I'm, I am doing a little of that updating of the book that way. But the, but the, the, the book that I've, I'm working on uh, right now that that'll be my next book project is um, a book about the progressive trend in in middle brow culture in the United States from 1925 to and again I'm not sure where I'm going to end this book but uh, at least I think into the 1970s or 80s so it's going to be a book that's going to talk about um, um Important moments in Middlebrow. I think Middlebrow culture has been dismissed as retrograde, as safe, as a dumbing down of high culture, as this kind of faux wannabe culture. And I think it's more complicated than that. And I think that some of the interesting scholars of Middlebrow culture have begun to argue as much too. Michael Denning and Joan Shelley Rubin and and um, Janice Radway. And and I want to push that a little further. So. The book's going to start with the Algonquin Roundtable meeting Sacco and Vinzetti, essentially. But there was this moment in the 1927 where they, Sacco and Vinzetti, the, the two uh, Italian immigrant anarchists who were, they may have been guilty, they may not, but they certainly didn't get a fair trial. And they were being executed. And uh, Dorothy Parker and Haywood Brune especially, but, but, but some of the other Algonquin uh, roundtable people got involved in that movement to try to save them. And it was, 
it was a moment where they kind of realized, I think, you know, this is two years before the crash. This is two years before the 1930s really began. And we've had that kind of descend into the Depression and the, you know, uh, rise of communism in the United States, the Communist Party and the, among intellectuals in the United States anyway. And yet they're already realizing we, we've got to be more serious. And we, in a certain sense, we have been fiddling as Rome burns. So anyway, that's where it starts. And then it's going to touch on certain what I see in key, as being kind of key moments or uh, uh, uh in Middlebrow culture, like Marian Anderson singing on the uh, Lincoln Memorial in a concert that was organized by Eleanor Roosevelt for her because Marian Anderson, the great African-American opera singer, was not allowed to sing in the uh, 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 in the auditorium that was, was managed by the Daughters of the American Revolution in Washington, D.C. Um, Harry Belafonte on the Ed Sullivan show, uh, these kinds of moments. And I want to, I want to uh, try my, my model for this book is a book called uh, a chance meeting by Rachel Cohen, where she, that she wrote in, I think it's about 30, 33 small chapters. Each chapter may be about 10, 12 pages long, not encumbered by a lot of footnotes. Each chapter containing at least one or sometimes two photographs. And, it's a, and each chapter focusing, in her case anyway, on a, a meeting between two or among three or four um, artists that you wouldn't necessarily – sometimes you see them as being – you knew that they knew each other, but other times you're surprised that they knew each other. Uh, Charlie Chaplin and W.E.B. Du Bois running into each other outside of a movie theater in Switzerland, <laughs> you know, something like that. But it, but also other configurations, constellations of people that you do know are important for culture, Amer- the development of American, in her case, modernist culture. The, her book begins with uh, Henry James Jr. and Sr. going to get their picture taken by Matthew Brady in, I think, 1855 or something. And it ends with Robert Lowell and Norman Mailer on the steps of the Pentagon in that great uh, protest against the war in 1967. Uh, so that's my goal is to come up with, I don't know if it'll be 30 chapters, but small chapters like that that show a progression and show people um, – coming and going and helping each other and developing a strain of middle-class, middle-brow culture that was more progressive and more interesting and I think kind of more important than than, uh, middle-brow culture has traditionally been seen as being. So that's what's next. It sounds fascinating. I hope once you finish it, you'll come back and (laughs) – Well, Ned Stuckey French, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you, Eric. I was honored to be asked, and I look forward to uh, looking at more of these podcasts. They, they, They sound like a great project. I'm Eric LeMay, and this is the New Books Network. You've been listening to Ned Stuckey French, author of The American Essay and the American Century, and co editor with Carl Klaus of Essays on the Essay.